Sacred Pause with Jessica Winderl. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the One Sacred Pause podcast. I'm Jessica, your host, and today I'm going to be interviewing or speaking with Katie Allen. And Katie is just a beam of light who is really doing a lot to share yoga with the community and the world. And I can't wait to dive into all the things she's up to in this episode. So thank you, Katie, for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Jessica. It's such an honor to be here and to share with you. Yes. And fun fact, we went to undergrad together at the University of Denver, which is, uh, God, feels like a lifetime ago. <laughs> Isn't it though? And it, it's so random because it's such a small liberal arts college in Denver. Yeah. And then now we're both out there living yoga, teaching yoga full time. And um, yeah, it's amazing where life takes us when we're open. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things I want to start off talking about is, so you own a thriving um, donation-based yoga studio in Southern California. And one of the initiatives you've been working so hard on the last few years and, and have launched is your yoga therapy program. And so I'd love to maybe have you tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So our studio is called Be The Chain Yoga. And we're located in Orange County, California. And my business partner, Allison, and I, we opened it five years ago, really with the intention of offering yoga to people of all ages, all backgrounds, all health conditions. I mean, all of our classes really apply the principles of yoga therapy, adapting the practices to the needs of who's ever in class that day, and then also integrating the philosophical foundations, subtle body tools and practices. So that's really been infused in our culture since day one, since we opened. And, you know, we had been running teacher training programs since 2010 at a previous location. And it honestly just made sense for us to continue up to offering yoga therapist training at yeah. the 850-hour level. Yeah, that's amazing because many people are probably familiar with the basic foundational 200-hour teacher training. And then... Many people go on from there to do a 300 or at the Atman Yoga School, we offer a 340-hour advanced training. And then the yoga therapy is the training you do after that. Correct. Yeah. So basically, our 850-hour program, it consists of first a 300-hour. So the 300-hour, it lives in the world of Yoga Alliance and is also part of our accredited program through the International Association of Yoga Therapists. So we have a lot of our trainees that can come in and just take level one and they get their RYT 500 through Yoga Alliance. And that's basically broad strokes yoga therapy. So how to work with people one-on-one, how to conduct a basic intake assessment, and then how to develop a customized therapeutic plan according to what comes up in the assessment. So then they can continue from that level one as a registered yoga teacher at the 500 hour, or they can matriculate on to levels two and three, which consists of an additional 550 hours over the next two and a half years. And then become a certified yoga therapist. Yes. Oh, I love that. What Can you explain the difference between yoga therapy and perhaps other styles or modalities of yoga? Sure. So basically, we think of just teaching yoga in group classes is that like we're offering asana, pranayama, different practices, trying to best meet the needs of who shows up in a group. Yoga therapy is more highly individualized. 
So yoga therapy takes place one-on-one or in small groups of people or patients that have a similar pathology or health condition. So there's three major differences between teaching yoga and yoga therapy. Number one is the amount of education, right? So we know people can become yoga teachers from a 200-hour training. Yoga therapy, you need a 200-hour and then an additional 800 hours on top of that. So it's over 1,000 hours of training. And after the training, there's a one-on-one assessment of the individual. And then from the assessment, the development of a plan according to the client's goals and particular health needs and conditions. So essentially, we're adapting the practice to the individual to help them achieve their health and wellness-related goals, as would like a physical therapist or a psychotherapist, but we're just using yoga therapy assessment models and yoga therapy practices. Yeah. Oh, it's so cool. And I know, what was it, like two years ago, maybe, the International Association of Yoga Therapists, they did a revamp and changed their um, curriculum requirements and everything. Is that, How long have you guys had your program? Sure. So we launched our program in 2016. So we just graduated our first yoga therapy cohort, which we are so excited about. Ah, because congratulations. Thank you. It's such a huge accomplishment. And our trainees worked so hard and our faculty was so awesome. And we really poured our heart and soul into our curriculum. But the International Association of Yoga Therapists, I mean, they were established in the 90s to differentiate yoga therapy from yoga. Because as we know, yoga became very popularized in the West, and most people associate yoga in the West as a group fitness practice, right? Mm -hmm. But for thousands of years, yoga has been taught one-on-one, one teacher, one student. It's about studying the student, looking at their habits, their patterns, their samskaras, and then helping them to reduce misperception, the kleshas, imbalances, and then giving them the appropriate practices so they can achieve more mental clarity, more sustained joy, samadhi, whatever the goal may be. So yoga in its original form has always been therapy, but just in the West, we place such a strong emphasis on asana that we needed to establish the new field of yoga therapy. So Larry Payne (laughs) and Richard Miller established IAYT in the 90s to differentiate this one-on-one, highly specialized and individuated approach. So, yeah. And there's actually more. So as IOIT has continued to evolve, they've started to accredit yoga therapy schools and credential yoga therapists because we started having a lot of yoga teachers taking weekend workshops and saying, oh, I'm a yoga therapist now. I took a class on the low back, so now I'm a yoga therapist. So they weren't quite regulating it until recently. And so there was a lot of misperception in our industry as to What constitutes a yoga therapist? How much training do you have to have? What can you do? What can you not do? So they've developed a scope of practice, and they were able to grandfather in yoga therapists that had a certain level of training to uphold the quality of our vocation. Exactly. I remember there was a lot of back and forth with that, and I remember looking at the old IAYT um, website, gosh, 10 nine years ago and being like, "Ah, I don't know. I don't know if that's the direction I want to go. And it was the direction I ended up not going. Um, But I think since yoga in general in the West has gotten so popular and there's so many more yoga teachers, 
it's really important to have standards and differentiation between uh, levels, experience, and education for people who hold themselves out to be yoga teachers or yoga therapists. And so I think it's a really wonderful addition to our community that there is now uh, a little bit stricter guidelines. Yes, absolutely. Because I'm sure with your background in Ayurveda and therapeutics that you might have been able to be grandfathered in yeah, as and a yoga therapist during yeah. that window when they allowed, because um, there's a lot of old school yoga therapists, you know, like my teacher, Robert Bernberg, he studied with Desika Char and has been studying sutras and yoga therapy for 40 years. But, you know, when you study in India in a traditional student teacher relationship, it's not like this rigorous Western academic format that we're now seeing. Right. So you had a lot of old school practicing yoga therapists that have been calling themselves yoga therapists for decades, but didn't actually have the credentialing, you know, so they had like a nice grandfathering window for everybody of the past to kind of get into the certification. And then they closed the window. So now if you want to become a yoga therapist, you have to attend an IAYT accredited training school. And And then once you graduate that, you fulfill all the requirements. And within that 800-hour minimum requirement, there's over 200 hours of practicum where you're actually providing one-on-one yoga therapy services. Yeah, that's amazing. And yeah, I I do have a little bit of regret for missing that boat. But on the other hand, you know, there's so many directions we can take teaching yoga. And that just wasn't my calling and that wasn't my passion. So for me, it's on one hand, I have a little regret. On the other hand, I'm like, you know what? There's so many other people out there who are lighting up the world doing this work. So I'll let them do it. And you're one of those people. And one of the really cool things about your program too, leading into what you're saying about 200 hours of practicum is you've created this bridge or these relationships with hospitals and clinics, right? In in California for your students or your interns to go and get those practical hours. Is that how that works? Absolutely. So how we organized it, because it's so funny when you conceptualize a 3.3 year program, you know, it's, it's in your head and you're organizing the curriculum and the content and creating a curricular map. And then you launch it and begin to roll through it the first time and start to iron things out and refine them. And then you get to the practicum is like, oh, okay, well, what's this actually going to look like in real life? not just conceptualize on our application from three <laughs> years ago. So we ended up refining the practicum, and I'm really proud of it. Um, so for our students, the first phase is that they complete their first 30 hours at the Be The Change clinic. So we actually built a yoga therapy clinic into our studio. So our regular group class students can see a yoga therapy intern for half price. Wow. Yeah, and so it exposes our community to yoga therapy, and it's a nice feeder for the yoga therapist therapy interns to actually get access to clients. Mm. And so during these first 30 hours, they actually have higher amounts of supervision. So we have a practicum supervisor either in the room or via FaceTime watching two out of the six sessions. Wow. And then afterwards we have debriefing phone calls. Okay, so let's look at the intake and assessment from this client. What are the practices that you're seeking to offer? So everything has to be approved. And then let's look at the soap notes. Let's look at the case summary reports. So they're really being trained to work in clinical settings during the phase one. And then after they finish their first 30 hours at the Be the Change clinic, they're eligible for external practicum sites. And we have relationships with one, two, three, four clinics throughout Orange County where they can be providing one-on-one services or conducting small patient group visits. 
Oh, that is so cool. And, you know, I've got to say, Katie, I'm so impressed with how much work and how much you've been able to accomplish in just a few years. And getting the services of yoga and pranayama and meditation and all these other healing modalities that fall under the umbrella of yoga and yoga therapy, getting that out into a population that maybe wouldn't otherwise be exposed to it. Um, I know that you also have a really strong initiative working with um, Hispanic populations as well. Is that part of the yoga therapy or is that something separate? So we started working with uh, Hogue Hospital in Newport Beach. So Hogue is a phenomenal organization and they're a nonprofit and they built a center for healthy living for, to meet the needs of underserved and at-risk community members. So they built out actually a wellness room to provide group classes. And we received the contract to provide group yoga therapy classes in English and Spanish. Hmm. So we jumped on board with them in 2016 and then started introducing basically group yoga therapy in Spanish to this community in a culturally appropriate way. Yeah. So we were able to build trust and to reduce misperception and clear up um, things that people thought yoga was that it's really not. And so from that relationship, we've actually, we've actually scholarshiped quite a few students from that community to do our 200 hour training program. Oh. So now, yeah. So now we have more Spanish speaking teachers because I need more Spanish speaking yoga teachers as we go out into clinics to either translate for my yoga therapy interns or to provide basic group classes. So we're trying to, you know, build this workforce development so that we can go out further into the communities. Oh my God. I love that. It's so, so important. And I found too, that there's a lot of people within the yoga community who, um, talk about doing programs to create change or programs that might do similar to what you're doing, getting out there in underserved or marginalized populations. And it's really inspiring to see people who actually take the steps and the action needed to make that happen. And is your, it sounds like your program's just been really successful too. If you're now getting people so hooked on yoga, like they're seeing the benefits in these group classes at the Hogue Clinic that they're now actually enrolling mm-hmm. in a yoga teacher training. Yep. Like that's phenomenal. <laughs> it is phenomenal. It is phenomenal. They're doing so well. And it's just like, I'm actually, um, you know, we talked earlier about training people and giving them opportunities to shine. So our, our shining star student is Maria and she's phenomenal. She did our 200 hour. And then the second 200 hour, she came back and she mentored the next group. And now I actually have her teaching my class at Hogue and I just sit in the back and I just let her teach. And then I, I give feedback, I step in. So really I just like love giving people an opportunity to grow, to spread their wings, to find their own voice in their own unique way. And it's like, you know, as, as a teacher trainer, you can see people's potential. Yes. Like I see your potential. I see where she's going and I know they don't quite see it, but I'm like, Maria, you have like a big career ahead of you. And there's so many opportunities when I'm out there networking with these different clinics and the different staff. And I'm like, Maria, we'll start you with this program in Tustin in February. And then we'll start over here the next June. So I can see the path laid out and, uh, it's, so beautiful. Yeah, I have a few students like that also or apprentices at the Atman Yoga School. And it is and I told one of them, um, gosh, probably just like a few weeks ago, I said, you didn't know it. But the first time when you came and did the first 200 hour training with me, I knew you were going to be part of the Atman Yoga School. 
Like I knew before you did, like way before you did. And she's like, she's like, you did? Oh my gosh, I had no idea. And it was the first time mm-hmm. I told her that, but I, that's exactly right. I think the job of a good teacher or the goal of a good teacher is to really be a support system and a catalyst to yes. help be a resource. And, uh, you know, similar to like tending a garden, like continuing to check in, continuing to be there, but also letting that student or that plant grow on their own and kind of see where they want to go and what they get most excited about. And there's room for everybody in the community of yoga as teachers or even as business owners. It's just how do we best serve the world? And that's by honoring whatever gifts we have and not trying to be a copy of somebody else <laughs> because we think mm-hmm. it's cool or we think we should, of course, the, mm-hmm. the death of dreams. But um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just, it's a really cool thing when you are training teachers and you're running a business and you get to see that potential and, yes. oh man. I love it. And that's actually, so my, my teacher, Robert always says like, as a yoga therapist, you know, when we see people come to us because they're suffering, whether they, their back hurts or there's anxiety or depression, they can't sleep, or they're having relationship problems or they, they, they hate their job or, you know, there's a myriad of reasons why people are suffering in this property material world. And as a yoga teacher, yoga therapist, our job is to be able to offer that higher perspective, to create a safe space, mm. to ask the questions so that people can look within and essentially pull up their own answers from like their intuition, you know, and in order for this therapeutic relationship to work, we say that we need to infuse our students with prana. We need mm. to give them like energy and then shraddha and vidya from the sutras. We need to give them the faith, the confidence, the strength that you can do this. Like seeing them more clearly than they can see themselves, cheering them on. Like you got this. Like I see your potential. And by infusing them with all of this prana until they can cultivate it themselves. And yes. they start to make those baby steps of, okay, yes, I can do this. I can step out. And I can teach or, oh, I'm already teaching pranayama to my family or I'm getting more clear on what brings me joy and what feeds my soul. And now I have the courage to make a career change, mm. you know? Yeah, and, I do. And one of the things that you and I really have in common is um, our love for chanting and mantra. And do you introduce any of that in your yoga therapy sessions, like when you're working in the clinics? No, that would be more one on one. Yeah, it's it's challenging because we're we're coming into their world, mm. you know. So really, culturally, it's a clinical setting. So how do we bridge yoga therapy and the work that's being done, and then also not offer things that might be triggering to the community members or mm. turn them off because they already think yoga is a religion or a Hindu practice. And you know, we've had our students at Hogue say at their Catholic church that the priests are telling them not to go to yoga. Yeah. You know, that yoga is of the devil. So we're trying to not pull in any tools that could potentially be seen as triggering or harmful. So essentially in the clinics, we try to create a yoga space. We bring in soft lighting, we bring in music so that we can infuse as much of that as we can, but mostly breath work, a few asanas, more visualization, mindset practices. We'll offer more so affirmations than mantra. Mm. So you know, one of our favorites is yo soy fuerte, <laughs> strong, yeah. you know, and we'll even pull that into different poses where you're kind of standing in the power pose, yo soy fuerte, and 
And the students love that. Oh, so again, so it's cool. all about the translation aspect mm. and what people are ready for. Yeah. However, some of the students from the community who have done our 200-hour training that were exposed to mantra and we explained what it is. This is a tool to focus the mind. A lot of mantras, they come from India. They are in Sanskrit. It's a vibrational language. This is not a religion. It's a tool to focus the mind. Once they get there, yes. People then can say, oh, I see the value and this makes a lot of sense to me. But I do think for the lay person that's coming into a clinic, being referred to yoga or yoga therapy by um, a provider, I think that might be a little too far of a jump. Yeah, <laughs> I can absolutely understand that. And it's important as teachers to be sensitive to that. And uh, one thing I'm really, I didn't tell you this before we were talking, but I'm so excited and so um, grateful to be in this position, but I got invited. I'm actually going to speak, uh, in May in Bergen, Norway at the, uh, Nordic sarcoma conference. And so this is a conference for medical professionals and psychiatrists and psychologists related around the cancer subtype of sarcoma. And, uh, I was diagnosed with synovial sarcoma and went through treatment in 2016, so I'm being invited to speak in front of a panel of uh, for alternative therapies related wow. to sarcoma treatment. And I don't have very much time to speak, but, you know, I was kind of joking. I'm uh, speaking, co-speaking with another patient or survivor of sarcoma who is also, uh, she's actually doing Ayurveda studies right now. So I was invited to come in and speak as a yoga teacher and Ayurveda teacher who also happen to go through treatment mm -hmm. for sarcoma and share some of the tools that I use to help me with that, that experience. And for me, the main tools were chanting, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yoga nidra meditation and visualizations and uh, uh, restorative yoga. And so I was just kind of joking. I was like, you know, it'd be so cool to be up there at the podium and just <laughs> bust out like you know, one, one round of the Gayatri mantra or something. And then I was like, mm, I think I'm pretty sure I'd lose my audience. <laughs> so, you know, making sure that we are meeting our students where they are, meeting our audience where they are. And hopefully then there's a little spark that gets ignited and they want to learn more and they want to know more, but it's on their own terms and in their own time. And so anyways, I'm just, I'm Absolutely. so excited to be able to have an opportunity to speak about some of this and specifically in a community like Norway where um, alternative therapies are, not only are they not available, but they're, there's a lot of fear around them. Mm. And yeah, it's just, it's very, um, I don't know, my experience anyways, seeing my oncologist there and uh, has been, it, it, it's felt very rigid in terms of there's only one way for treatment and everybody gets that one way. And you and I both know as yoga practitioners that there's so many other ways and yoga can be a big part of that in that process of healing and releasing trauma and moving through the fire to the other side. So um, yeah, I'm just super excited, but <sighs> of course, you know, that's why I was asking about the chanting because that's such an amazing practice, but it is, it's such a powerful practice and we know that, but we're a little far along on the yoga path that it's like, that's just sort of infused into what we do. And I think that when we 
explain what we do to the medical profession, it's really all about translation and what's the language we can use to set us up for success and to get them to understand the methodology behind what we do in a way that they can see the benefit and maybe think, oh, okay, that might be helpful for my patients. You know, so I might approach it in talking about the nervous system and saying, okay, so we know that when people are going through cancer or some chronic condition, everything is exacerbated by stress. So if we can empower people with tools to calm the nervous system and then talk about the HPA access and talk about then how breath work and meditation and mantra and restorative yoga and walking, as you talked about, all downshift the nervous system, I might put it in that context and then back it up with evidence-based research because there's yes. so much research right now showing the effectiveness of yoga on different conditions. And that might be the right format for them to think, oh, okay, that makes sense logically and uh, they can more likely get on board. Exactly. Yeah. No, I'm going to keep it super simple and super fact-based for sure. Uh, but what... So still talking about chanting and mantra, um, would you say that's one of your biggest personal practices? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I found yoga when I was 19 at the University of Denver. Yeah. I, I don't know if you found it then, but it was it was free at our university. And, uh, you know, I found my time in undergraduate to be pretty toxic and yep. difficult. And yoga really helped me to get out of my head and into my body and I continued yoga when I went to graduate school at Tulane in New Orleans. And I luckily found Wild Lotus Yoga Studio, which is Sean Johnson's studio. Oh. Amazing. They're yeah. amazing kirtan artists. And obviously, New Orleans is such a city for music. And so I, while I was in graduate school, I was researching and studying and so in my head. But then I would go take these awesome vinyasa flow practices with live music and chanting and kirtan. And it really opened me up to more subtle body practices. And um, as much as I love vinyasa flow and it helped me through my 20s, as I progressed later in life and became a professional and just dealing with all of the things that happen in life, mantra became like my saving grace, like my primary practice to get my head in the right place so that I can show up and be my best self no matter where I go. You know, when I, I moved back home to California after graduate school, then I did my training at Loyola Marymount um, for yoga therapy in 2007. And that was actually fortuitous as well, because I would go up to LA every weekend. And then I discovered the Kirtan community in Santa Monica. And that's where I met Govinda Sanrada. Mm, and yeah. what I love, and he's essentially like my main Kirtan and Bhakti and Mantra teacher. And uh, just to have those like sacred vibrations in your consciousness and to have all of these different mantras to choose from that have different energetic qualities and that I can pull them in as like my friends, my tools, my lifelines, no matter what I'm going through. I mean, it's revolutionary and you don't need space. Mm. It's literally happening in your mind. You can listen to mantras when you're in your car, yep. when you're moving to the next event. And again, because what you take in through your senses affects your consciousness, which then affects your quality of mind and affects the quality of the actions wherever you show up. Yeah. Well, and the really cool thing, too, about a sustained mantra uh, practice is it, it gets imprinted so deeply into your being that for myself, you know, I notice I'll just be doing something else and very quietly at the back of my mind. I'm hearing the chant. 
And I love that because it's just like you said, it goes with you everywhere. And you're waiting in line at the dentist. (laughs) You can chant. You're taking a shower. You can chant. You sit down and you have your intentional practice in front of your altar. You can chant. Um, Doing japa. It's, yeah, I love it. And for me, it's one of the practices where I feel the most instantaneous of a change. Mm-hmm. when I need to get out of my head or I need to get out of my own yeah. way because I'm just going down a spiral of just, you know, thoughts or my attitude needs a readjustment yep. <laughs> or yes. my energy needs to have a little shift happen. Uh, sitting down and doing just even five minutes, like, oh, you wake up or not wake up, but stand up and shake it off. And you're like, wow, okay. I feel refreshed. I feel ready to continue on with whatever I need to do. And I think the big barrier to entry for most people is they think chanting is something religious. Yes. Or cult. And essentially they're thinking I'm praying to this deity and I don't, what is the Ganesha or Krishna or this? And like, I'm Christian. So how can I do this? And so I think like in the Western mindset, it can be sort of off putting to think that I'm bowing down before these deities. But again, that's misperception. Mm -hmm. That's misperception about what yoga is. It's really about, these are sacred vibrations, and we're just trying to pull in different qualities into our systems. Mm-hmm. So it's like in the ancient Vedic system, it's like they tried to give form to the formless so that we could develop a relationship with it and then try to imbue the best qualities into our own mind, bodies, and hearts. Yeah. You know, but it is, it is so powerful. And in, in what you were saying earlier is that like when you're in, you're having a bad day, you're in your head, you chant a mantra in five minutes, everything shifts. Like you literally can't be angry and chant Hare Krishna. Yeah. You can't like, try <laughs> be angry and then chant it for five minutes because it's such an uplifting vibration. Like you smile, yeah. you know, your eyes brighten and all you have to do is just stick with the mantra, just keep chanting it. And then you watch your mind, you watch it go away to the anger, or go to the judgment, but pull it back to the mantra. And then all of a sudden over time, you're able to transcend the lower levels of the mind, the monkey mind, the klesias, the clouds, and you're able to connect back to something more subtle, more mm-hmm. clear, more joyful, more of the highest vibration, which is really what we're trying to embody all the time. And so mantra is really the perfect tool because it's in your head and no one even needs to know you're doing it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's why you know Ayurveda says that everything we're doing is to try and get back to a remembrance of self or our own true nature. And for me, chanting and mantra just kind of, it, it's that vibrational frequency that sheds whatever is crusty or heavy or just useless, not necessary. And then afterwards, it's just kind of like this refreshed, okay, I feel lighter, I feel more calm, I feel more peaceful, I feel more in touch with my own true nature. And it's, yeah, I don't know. I just can't say enough. Yeah, it's all about coming back to our our true nature. And even in the Yoga Sutras later in, in chapter four, you know, they talk about how really we're just removing the blockages within our own systems. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we have the, the the mala, the ama, the residue, the sticky stuff, undigested experiences, emotions that are blocking our minds, our bodies, our hearts. And so we're literally just scrubbing away the residue to reveal what's already there, you know, to reveal our natural state of of lightness, of balance, of grace, of ease. Mm-hmm. It's always within us. We just forget. 
yep. we get blocked. The the connection gets fuzzy. <laughs> and then and so again, I like to think of mantra as like this is your anchor. This is your mind anchoring into your heart space, like your hurithaye, like your best self. Yeah. And you just keep pulling the energy down from the mind back into the heart. And then when you're able to live from the heart, it's like you open your eyes and you can really see people, mm-hmm. you know, like you see people and like you see your dog and you see mm. nature and the wind and the sky and you have this like expanded consciousness. And for me, I can always observe the nature of my mind on my dog walk in the morning. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm such a crazy dog, but you have two dogs, right? I do. I have two two dogs. Two rescue pit bulls. I have two uh, Alaska Huskies. Aren't they the best? Oh my God. I'm just so healing. Oh, well, they're just, we learn so much from them. (laughs) Absolutely. But you know, like my, my, my morning practice is essentially mantra. Mm-hmm. It's mantra, pranayam, meditation, a little bit of movement. And I think so many yogis think like, oh, I can't do a home practice because I can't get in the full hour of asana. And again, that's a misperception. Really, it's just about orienting your mind into the right frequency to start your day. And Mark Whitwell says seven minutes. Yep. Seven minutes is really all you need. If you can do something for seven minutes that anchors your mind into a more balanced state to get you oriented before you start your day, that's a practice, Mm -hmm. you know? And then when I walk my dog, I can observe the quality of my mind. If my practice, if I had more time, if I was fully there, then I'm more expansive. I can really notice what's around me. Or if my mind's a little more rajasic or fiery, I've got a lot to do, then I'm rushing through the dog walk. I'm like, come on guys, we got to (laughs) go. Go poo, go poo. (laughs) So again, everything is an opportunity for self-reflection. Okay. Am I rushing through life? Mm -hmm. Am I agitated? Okay, how do I pull it back? Yeah, well, and it's just, yeah, it's so funny you said that because dog walks, huskies, gosh, they need so much exercise. And when I moved to Norway, I told you it was uh, six days after my last cancer treatment. And then the whole next six months were basically a blur um, of healing and processing trauma, recognizing trauma. I was kind of blindsided actually by how, uh, just how I felt and the emotions that came up. And I just, I, I felt very unprepared. Um, and so I was leaning very heavily on my practices of observation and, and chanting, as I said, and, and restorative yoga. But every day when I would have to take my dog at the time, I just had one dog. Um, I would go for an hour, two hours every day. And we lived close to this really beautiful kind of nature preserve so I'd go out there and I wouldn't see anybody and it would just be me and my dog. And it's so, so healing and so therapeutic, but also that is when I did a lot of my chanting was when I was yeah. walking in nature. And then it'd be really funny because I'd get so hooked on it. It'd be buzzing from the vibration mm-hmm. of the chanting that when I would come back, we're done with our dog walk and we're coming back into the neighborhood, <laughs> I wouldn't want to stop chanting. And then <laughs> I would pass a neighbor walking on the street. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm that crazy neighbor <laughs> who's saying, same thing. yeah, just like crazy things. And in Norway in particular, everybody tries to avoid one another and avoid eye contact and it, it's very funny. It's very different from America and very different from California. And yeah, I just would have had to laugh at myself. I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm not weirdo. I'm, the same way. I'm absolutely <laughs> the same way. That's me. And it's funny because, you know, you and I both teach at Bhakti Fest. Yeah. And when you spend four or five days 
in the desert where you're chanting all day long and then you're practicing yoga and you're breathing and you're in nature and you're with conscious people and eating very high vibrational food. Like everything in the environment uplifts your vibration and your prana. Like, you know, your eyes get wide and you're like glowing and you're buzzing and everyone looks you in the eyes when you walk by. And I remember I would come back from Bhakti Fest and I'd walk my dogs and I'd see people about to cross, you know, the sidewalk from me and I'd be looking at them and beaming <laughs> my like Bhakti vibes. Yeah. They'd, like put their heads down and, you know, completely shut off. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm back in the world, you know? <laughs> so it's just kind of funny to watch that those shifts and how yeah. we open ourselves up through the chanting, through these practices. We're so open and aware. And then a lot of people are not doing these practices. So they're in a very different place. Yeah. And have a real, really different reaction to people who are. <laughs> and they think we're crazy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I have a funny story I want to share with you about uh, Govindas and Radha. I, it, well, and actually, this is how I came to chanting and, and mantra. And so actually, it's a really beautiful story. I love telling it. Um, when I first was starting getting serious about yoga, um, I was not exposed to mantra for a while. Uh, it just wasn't part of what my teachers were teaching at the time. And I didn't know any better. And I was at a studio and they sold like yoga CDs or whatever. And so I bought one. I was just like picked one that had a pretty cover. <laughs> and it happened to be uh, Govinda's, uh, I think his first CD that he put out. And I had just, love. Yeah. I, yeah, it had just come out. And I would listen to it. I had a commute like a 45 minutes uh, driving to work. And so I would listen to the CD just on repeat. And the funniest thing happened. I just had these urges to start singing along. Mm-hmm. And in particular, their Hare Krishna version is to this day is my go-to uh, chant and mantra. And and it was so funny. It wasn't probably until maybe even like a year later. It was a while, maybe even more than a year, that I realized it was a Kirtan CD. Like I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> I did not know I was singing Kirtan. I had no idea. Well, you don't know what something is, right? Right. You just don't know. And then once it was kind of explained to me and I was exposed to it a little bit more and I was like, oh, this is because I thought I was just singing along to a yoga CD and I didn't know why I wanted to sing along so much. (laughs) What's this practice and how does it work? Yeah. yeah. And then it's funny how we just stumble upon things on this path. There's always more. There's always more. Yeah. And, you know, it unfurls in the time it's supposed to when we're ready. But I just it it's such a warm space in my heart when I think about Govindas and Govindas and Radha and I think about Hare Krishna, their chant. It's, uh, it drives my husband crazy because I chant it so much at home (laughs) and he's, you know, my husband doesn't do a whole lot of yoga. He's into it, but he's not, he doesn't have a sustained practice. So he's always like, Oh yeah, you're, you're chanting your Hari thing again. I'm like, yep, (laughs) I am. No, it's funny because like, you know, when I was up at LMU studying yoga therapy, uh, again, I go to the Bhakti Yoga Shala and I go to Santa Monica Power Yoga and Brian Kess, they would have kirtans there. And there was this big spiritual nightlife component happening in Santa Monica. And then I come back to Orange County and there'd be nothing nothing. And I was like, where is this? You know, like the yoga studios here, they have their group classes and their workshops during the day, but there was nothing at night. And I think I was in my I don't know, late twenties, maybe early thirties. 
And, you know, you don't, I had a boyfriend, I had my, my partner, I don't want to go to the bars and talk about nothing. Like I want to have like deep intellectual conversations. I want to be around community. And I was starving for that because it didn't exist in Orange County. Mm. And so luckily I got to taste that and to experience that in Santa Monica, which is the epicenter of yoga. And, um, so essentially in creating our studio be the change that was a huge component for us at the beginning that we wanted to be the center of spiritual nightlife in orange county because it just didn't exist so do you still do a lot of kirtans and have those events at your studio you know that's a great question (laughs) and we don't as much as we would like because we started out having so many workshops so many events but it takes a lot of energy to bring musicians in and getting all the equipment and to promote. And it's actually um, so fun and exciting, but it's tiring when you're the studio owner and you have to be the one to close up. So we did, we had lots of events for the first couple years. And then when we launched the yoga therapy training, I mean, that was such a huge undertaking that you just realize as a business owner, we can't do it all. Yep. Like I, I can't be here all night with the kirtans and have the trainings during the day and managing the staff. And it was too much. So we kind of shifted from the spiritual nightlife to the, the place for higher education, hmm. you know, in the yoga therapy training. So now we do sound bath and Reiki healing circles every, every month. Then we do kirtan once a quarter. So we've found like the right frequency of that. Because we've had to spend so much time and energy managing our trainings and our students. Yeah, well, I think that's just the nature of things that we're moving forward, we're evolving, and we're shifting. And I think as business owners and as yoga teachers, and most importantly, yoga students, that should be our goal to be moving forward and uh, kind of checking in with, okay, well, what's working? What's not working? Do I need to lean in and perhaps bring in a little bit more fiery intensity tapas? Or do I maybe need to back off and perhaps be a little bit more spacious and a little bit more cooling and a little bit more feminine? And for me, that's one of my biggest, um, not well, lessons for sure, but also just interests is how do we learn to ride the wave, the ebb and flow, rather than trying to constantly just be on the set path? Because I think when we're too rigid in any mindset or any practice, um, well, we're out of balance and we're never going to be able to get closer to that remembrance of ourself or place of peace within. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think it all comes down to regulating and moderating your energy because everything's energy, right? Your thoughts are energy, your food is energy, how quickly you move through the world is energy, what you spend your time doing is energy. And it's like, we're limited and we can only do so much. And so I think as whether you're a yoga studio owner or a teacher, how many classes can I teach a week? Mm -hmm. Or I'm an entrepreneur, how much can I do? How much can I really take on and manage well? Yeah. And still be whole and still have time for my self-care and for my partner and to see family and nourish my friendships. You know, so it really is a balancing act. And so that's why we always have to be vigilant. We have to constantly be reflecting upon our life, how we're spending our time, what we're doing, how is it working? Is there a better place to put my energy? Do I need to draw back a little bit right now? So that we're always reflecting and refining as we evolve through these different phases. Yeah. And reminding ourselves too, that we have the right to change. 
nothing is set in stone. And if perhaps we go a little too far in one direction, maybe too much intensity or too much lethargy or sloth, yeah. uh, we can recalibrate and we can check in with that energy and readjust based on what we need to get us closer to that state of balance. And I think, especially as a business owner, for me, that's, it, it's easier for me to do within my personal life, I think, than it is from a business standpoint. I don't know. How do you, how is it for you? Absolutely. And, you know, we've talked about this and it's been challenging because as a business owner, it's like you're managing a living, breathing organism that's constantly changing. And there's a lot of people depending on you and a lot of students and community. And I, I feel like the only way I can describe owning a, a studio and having layers of trainings and you know, so many things going on is like, I feel like I'm at the center of this like spiraling energy vortex, <laughs> you know, and it's just swirling all around me and it's so beautiful and powerful and exciting and all encompassing. It's like you fully throw yourself into it, you yeah. know, because it's you, it's your dharma, it's your passion. Like I've, I've worked my whole life to, to build this and I just, I love it. And at the same time, it can be all consuming, you know? So I know like, I've shared with you in the past that for me and my husband, you know, we've been trying to get pregnant for a few years. And so I've had to really shift. I've had to shift my energy. I've had to shift my priorities mm -hmm. in order to become a little bit more withdrawn mm -hmm. from things. And how do I step back a little bit? And how do I allow other people to take on some of the roles and responsibilities so that I can cultivate more kapha, earth energy, and less pitta, fiery energy, but, you know, our modern society is all about productivity and get to the next goal and do that. So I think it's almost counterintuitive mm. to everything around us. And especially when you're doing what you love. Like, I love what I do. I love my life. I love teaching. I love building programs. I love being out in the world and birthing new ideas. But I can't be birthing all of these big things and then not myself. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's like I've had to just really sit back and evaluate and say, Katie, Stop creating. Don't build any more programs. Don't take on any more clinics. Like, stop. You're not allowed. Just let everything just settle and become more refined so that you can pull back and that you can nurture yourself and create a different way of living so that you can create space for a family. Mm -hmm. And I think it takes a lot of courage to be able to really sit and observe the reality of an individual situation, you know, for any of us, it's so easy to give into the distraction. It's so easy, especially as a business owner, to use that as an excuse to not sit with like, okay, well, what do I really need? What's actually going to be the most harmonious choice for me right now? Rather than being like, oh, okay, well, I have to get this done. And I've got that program. Okay, I've got that teacher training. And for me, I travel a lot to run my programs. Um, I'm not just based in one studio and I'm not just based in one city. Mm. So for me, I have that added component, the, <laughs> the vata of constantly being on the move. And okay, then my plane's delayed and my Airbnb was not good. So I've got to move to a different hotel. And, and oh my gosh, did I pack all my books? And it, it gets to be a lot. Yeah. And just like you, I mean, I have my absolute dream job. <laughs> there is mm -hmm. nothing else I would rather or could be doing in this world. And so I think that passion from within guides us to perhaps push a little harder than maybe is good for us in some ways or in some spaces. And 
I have observed for myself a really interesting energy arc the last few years in terms of 2016 was really about, I had, gosh, just so much uh, tamasic energy, just heavy, Mm -hmm. lethargic. And yeah, I was in recovery and I was in shock and there was trauma and there was a lot of things, uh, repressed emotion (laughs) that was starting to come up. And so then that fed into this more like fiery, make it happen, hustle of 2017. And then I'm like, 2018 also. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, pull back the reins. Mm -hmm. That's just burning out and not burning through. And so now I'm kind of like entering into the space where like you, perhaps I'm really investigating into how do I slow down in a way that's going to be really balanced. So it's not lethargic, but it's soft, it's sweet, it's calm. And for me, that's, that is also letting go of some of my programs and that can be kind of a scary feeling too. There's a little fear around that. Like, oh my gosh, okay, well, if I stop teaching as much, what's going to happen to my business? And and then for me, I'm just like, breathe, 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 breathe. And 2019 is the year of spaciousness. I just am trust and faith and give it all up and see what happens. And I'll tell you what, it feels really good. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And it's so powerful. I mean, the thing is, I think you can do it all. I think you can still do what you do and do what you love and do it well, but also have space for for self, self self-care, for time. And I know what's helped me in this last year as I've been on this journey is, um, you know, I listen to a lot of Tim Ferriss and also entrepreneurial podcasts. And I also read a book early this year called Radical Candor Hmm. by Kim, Kim Scott. And she worked for Apple and Google and managed like, 500 person teams. And the book is about how to be a kick-ass boss without losing your humanity. Yeah. And it's from like a feminine perspective. And so it's about having, you know, difficult conversations to be radically candid, to care deeply, but then challenge directly. And so again, if you're going to create space for yourself, you have to develop a team. And if you have a team, then you have to delegate and then you have to manage and you have to nourish relationships. So I look outside of the yoga industry for best practices. Yes. And that's really helped me to nurture the relationships with my employees, my managers, my directors, and that we have really smooth working relationships. And so there's so much like trust and confidence that I can give them things and so then I can back away. And then using Tim Ferriss's approach where he's about batching your time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, only, and, he, and I love what he said in one of his books, he talked about how we're most productive in the morning. He's like, don't start checking your emails right when you first get up, like do the most important task first and then do your emails after lunch. And I was like, what? Like, that's a revolutionary. Like I've been a slave to my emails for 10 years. Yeah. You know, like I wake up and I just start running through them and then they all come back to me and then I lose hours and never got to the big projects that I wanted. Yeah. So to actually create these boundaries and how I structure my, my time, my energy, where I check emails like one to three and then I hammer them out and then I don't look at them again until the next day. And it's liberating. And I feel so powerful. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. And it's such good advice, too. And when you work for yourself, like we have to find these things that work for us to stay on track and stay organized. And I really also love your advice and the approach you've taken to look outside the yoga industry. Mm -hmm. I think that's I try to do that as well. um, Because I think 
best practices. And I also have a background in law. That's where I was working before I was teaching full time. And so things like contracts and negotiations and um, understanding language from more of a business standpoint is a strength of mine. And so I feel more comfortable in that realm than maybe some people who are yoga teachers who don't have that background feel comfortable. Um, but I think that can be very helpful in setting yourself up for success as an entrepreneur is, okay, in the business world, you're running a business. It doesn't matter if you're teaching yoga or if your business is selling widgets. You're running a business. That's the bottom line. And so you have to be able to keep your accounting and make sure that everything from payroll and taxes and all that really unsexy stuff <laughs> is, is in order. Otherwise, your business is not going to last very long. I mean, it's Stira and Suka. Yes. You have to have like the stability, the structure, the foundation, the processes, the organization. Like for me, I make charts. I love whiteboards. I have charts for everything. I, I just, I love being organized because I feel safe. And yeah. then now that I have my structures, I can enjoy the Suka, the ease, the lightness, the creativity of it. Did I have time? Okay. I got my emails done. Now I can work on this or I can go for a walk or go to the beach you know, but as an entrepreneur that you wear so many hats, it's so easy to spend every minute of your life in devotion to mm. your business or your craft. Yep. And I think that's something, this is also an interesting point in the yoga world because when you do what you love all day and that's really what you do, I think it's important to diversify what you put your mind on to go do other things besides yoga. Yeah. You know, literally, like, cause my husband's like, so your whole life is yoga. And then when you have free time, you go take yoga, <laughs> you to yoga, or you're doing mantras. And so for me, like going in, we have a garden, we grow vegetables, we go down to Mexico to Baja and, you know, surf and cook and hang out with our dogs and travel. So it, I think it's so important to find other things to put your mind and consciousness on besides just what you are completely devoted to. Yes, I totally agree. And I'll be honest, I struggle with that. I, I have to remind myself of that a lot. And I do, my other passion that's non-related to yoga is skiing. I just love big mountain skiing. And in Norway, I don't get to do it as much as I, well, I haven't done it at all. Um, but I used to live in Salt Lake. That was the last place I lived before moving to Norway. And, you know, you're half an hour away from five, six, seven different world-class resorts. And of course, backcountry and all that stuff. And so now that I don't have that as much in Norway, I'm looking for, okay, what can my non-yoga hobby be? Mm -hmm. Because it is all-consuming when you're so devoted and so passionate and so in love with the practice and you want it to be all day, every day. <laughs> Backing it off, makes, yeah, it's hard. And it, and it makes you a well-rounded individual just to do other things. And then also to be out in the real world too. You know, I was talking to Amy Wheeler, who's she's the president of the International Association of Yoga Therapists. And she's this amazing, amazing woman. And she's a professor at Cal State Redlands in, I think, kinesiology and psychology. And so she's out in the world at the university, but she's like, Katie, she's like, you live in a bubble. You live in a yoga bubble. I get to go to work in a sacred space. I have all my students. Everything's very peaceful and calm. And she's like, you forget what it's like to be out in the world. So I think it's important because yogis, we tend to sort of hibernate and we get very sensitive <laughs> and we just want to pal around with other people in the community. But again, it's just as important for us to get out of the studios into the communities and to be building relationships with the outside world and make ourselves well-rounded individuals. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that reminder. I needed that. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. Oh my gosh. Um, 
Well, we're about wrapping up here. I just want to touch back again. Um, you know, we've kind of woven it through, but what are your favorite practices of stillness or what do you like to do to lead yourself into a state of meditation? Mm. That's beautiful. And it's funny because my morning practice changes. It really does. I know some people like to have their sadhana and they do the same thing every day and that's it. But I, I go through different things. I think that's my Libraness. I'm a little mm. bit watery and fluid with that. And I have my, my sacred space in the morning. I have my altar. I light my candle. I have my tea. And just like your podcast, it's that sacred pause. Yeah. You know, just to even close your eyes, to find the breath. And then for me, I have a tune in mantra. So whatever that is for the last couple of years, it's been the Hanuman Chalisa mm, just because yeah. it's, it's long and it's been challenging for me in a new way um, to memorize that. I like to memorize very long chants. And so the Hanuman Chalisa has really been my practice for the last two years. And then recently, because of what I'm going through in like my personal life and my fertility journey, um, I've been really tapping into Ganesha mantras, trying mm. to cultivate my own strength as I move through different challenges. And also um, Name, the protective mantra, just to yeah. feel guided, protected. So it's, again, balancing that, that feminine with some of the, the strength and the masculine qualities. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Govindas talks about how, like, your mantras, they're like your friends. <laughs> you, mm. you call upon different friends when you're going through different things. And so you always have someone that's there to help you remember who you are and who you want to be and to fortify you and whatever means, you know, that you're working towards. Mm. Oh, that's so cool. Do your dogs sit with you when you do uh, your morning sadhana? No, they get, they get in bed. <laughs> oh, so like they love to snuggle. Um, they don't sleep with us because they're like 70 pounds. <laughs> and they straighten their legs and kick us. Yeah. So in the morning we let them in around six and we snuggle and then I get up and do my practice and they, they lay in bed until it's time for their walk. Oh, I love that. Oh, my gosh. I know I'm missing my dogs. <laughs> They're still in Norway while I'm here in the States. But, oh, well, I'll be home for Christmas and I'll see them. Yeah. Uh, well, Katie, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be here and share with us. And, yeah, I just it's, it's so wonderful to see what you're up to and what you're creating in the world. And, um, you know, I wish you every success. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jessica. It's such an honor to be here. And I always love talking to you. And I, I truly feel like we're kindred spirits on this path together. We started out at DU. Oh, and my God. We were walking <laughs> this path. You know, we, not many people find this. And so I think we're both so lucky to be on this path and to have others that are along our side that we can go to, to lift each other up, to ask questions, clarifications, that we can really continue to do this great healing work that brings us both so much joy. So I just, I love our time together and I'm so proud of you and all you've accomplished. And I love this podcast and it's oh. truly my honor to be on it. Oh, thank you. Well, we will be in touch, but um, have an awesome day, Katie. Thank you. You too, Jessica. Take care. Bye. Bye.